and welcome to tonight's event brought to you by uh, Yes KLV, that's Yes Kirkintilloch, Lindsay and the Villages, so you can understand why we call it Yes KLV. My name's Ken McNeil, I'm a member of uh, Yes KLV and I'll be your chair this evening. Our subject tonight is pensions in an independent Scotland. I'm sure many of you remember that in 2014, this was a very controversial subject, and I'm sure it's going to be the same again. So tonight's uh, discussion should be very interesting. So I'd now like to um, introduce our uh, panel. And what I'm going to do is just give you a brief introduction, and then I'm going to pass over uh, to them and ask them to expand a bit more about themselves. First um, up tonight um, will be uh, Craig DL. Um, Craig is the head of policy and research at what he calls not the think tank, but the think and do tank of Commonweal. And he's written extensively on um, matters to do with independence. And I'm sure many of you will probably actually be uh, quite familiar with Craig's work. Uh, he also tells he's currently co-authoring a book uh, with Bill Johnson uh, called, uh, or about aging issues in Scotland, so that's uh, going to be of interest as well. So if I can pass over to you, Craig, and ask you to expand a wee bit more. Hi, everyone. Now, normally when I would give a talk at an event like this, uh, especially for something as complicated as pensions, you know, I can talk for hours or days and stuff like this, and I usually have a nice PowerPoint presentation with graphs and tables and figures and whatnot. I don't have time to do any of that. So all I'm going to do is suggest a few topics that folk might want to talk about. And if any of them come back to me in the Q&A, it'd be great. So you might want to ask me just a brief history of what the welfare state is in the UK and how we got to where we are and where we're heading with it. Ask me about that oft-quoted figure that the UK state pension is the lowest in Europe and why things aren't as simple as that. There's some nuances there that are worth discussing. Ask me about the UK private pension system and why changes in the way we work are really causing havoc in that system and and, and how that you know helps us prepare for uh, for retirement or hinders us um, ask me what we can do to reform them ask me about universal basic income and how that would affect a, a state pension since that's now a policy that is has super majority support in the Scottish Parliament only the Tories are against it now ask me about how independence negotiations between Scotland and the remaining UK might affect uh, might affect pensions. Ask me about currency and how they might affect pensions. And if you really are up to speed on, uh, on, on how things are, are, are progressing in Scotland at the moment, ask me about the Social Justice Commission report that came out this morning and what I think about th what they've said about pensions. So I'm not going to monopolise the time any more than that because I'm really interested to hear some of these questions. Please, I'll pass over to the next person. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much for that, Craig. I think if everyone asks you a question, everything you've said they can ask you about will be here for about three weeks, but we'll see what comes up. Um, next up, uh, I'm going to call on uh, Gordon McIntyre-Kemp in just a moment. Um, Gordon, again, uh, another well-kent uh, uh, face from the uh, independence campaigns past. He's the Chief Executive Officer of um, Business for Scotland mm -hmm. and also runs uh, the Believers uh, in Scotland uh, website. So, Gordon, tell us a bit more. Hi, thanks for uh, having me along tonight. Okay, um, I want to talk about pensions from two points of view, uh, one as an economist uh, and the other as a campaigner. Um, and running a, a think tank myself, doing a lot of research, having a team of researchers looking at things, I have to say pensions, the more you look into it, the more it's like staring into a black hole 
because you know you just keep on learning more and more difficult things every day. However, there are some very simple truths about pension, and I'm going to share a couple of those with you now, showing you a couple of images. Um, and you know, it really shouldn't pensions really shouldn't be an issue in the next independence referendum because actually it's not a strong suit of the UK. But for some reason, we've allowed them to get away with actually using pensions against independence when actually pensions should be uh, a great weapon in the armory of independence campaigners. So let me share my screen now and show you this image here from the uh, OECD net pension replacement rates. So basically, this is from the, the world's leading think tanks associated with the World Bank, and it collects information from uh, I think uh, 28 now, it was 26, I think it's 28 uh, of the world's richest countries that are members. And here it's actually looking at net pension replacement rates. So this is the percentage of your uh, final salary whilst working that the, pen the state pension in your country is worth. And out of all of those countries there, if you can see it starts off with Turkey, and obviously there's a difference between male and female in some countries, and that's a problem. Uh, but then you go all the way down to the bottom and you see the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom has, in terms of net replacement rate, the worst pension, not just in the EU, but in the entire developed world, if you consider some of those countries like Mexico to be part of the developed world. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of scary to think of it that way, that we're actually having, we're paying such a low pension as a percentage of final salary. Uh, and yet people are being told that an independent Scotland wouldn't be able to afford uh, the full uh, UK pension, when actually every other independent country in the world can afford a better pension than that. And that's something we've got to turn, we've got to turn that into uh, something that's, that's uh, a tool for us, a weapon for independence campaigning next time round. And it's not just as a campaign tool that we need to do this, it's actually just the right thing to do. Pensions are simply too low. 17% uh, of uh, the population are over the age of 65, and about a third of them are totally reliant on the state pension. And the state pension is about half of what the real living wage is. And therefore, you just have to ask yourself, well, just what percentage of pensioners in Scotland are actually living in poverty? Uh, well, actually, it's 170,000 individuals living in poverty. And the key thing here is, though, that you might actually say, ah, but this, this list, Gordon, it's got a lot of countries where the cost of living isn't as is, is, isn't expensive or, or, or has got low wages and all these sort of things. You can factor on all of these things. But at the end of the day, what this shows is that the drop between the ability to uh, be an economic actor and involved in the economy of your country and the ability to actually afford to live drops significantly in the UK versus everyone else, you become poorer when you retire than you do anywhere else. Um, in terms of what can we do with that, in terms of uh, as a campaigning uh, sort of point of view, uh, well, we've been spread, spreading this message quite a lot uh, through our billboard campaigns. And this is one that received from the Advertising Standards Association uh, dozens, if not hundreds, actually, of complaints, uh, and the, the Advertising Standards Authority upheld that we were allowed to make this claim. 
but the UK claims uh, pays the worst state pension in the developed world. Let's double it in an independent average and match uh, an independent Scotland and match the EU average. It actually wouldn't match the EU average if we doubled it. But what we're saying there isn't that on the day after independence we'll double it. What we're saying is that once we've cast off the economic straitjacket of the UK and we can start to use a well-being approach to economics, a more entrepreneurial Scotland, a more innovative Scotland, and invest in real growth areas, high technology growth areas, including renewables, energy, etc., then our economy will grow significantly faster and that will allow us to have staged increases in pensions. Now, if you actually then consider where that would leave the independence campaign in terms of what does it actually mean uh, to uh, the, the yes, no numbers, etc. Well, basically, uh, we polled on that. And on a poll uh, where uh, just before the last election, we found that yes was leading 51% to 49%. We asked the question, uh, about, oh, I've picked the wrong one here, but this is a well-being, uh, this is the well-being um, uh, poll that we did. Uh, and basically said, if we put uh, a well-being approach to the heart of the economic plans for an independent Scotland, one that recognises quality of life, equality, fairness, happiness and health, or all economic outcomes, if you give an equal weight to economic growth, how would you vote? And that was 59%. And that was mirrored when we actually asked people about increasing the pension. And we basically asked multiple questions. And it turns out that if you actually uh, offer to increase pensions by 20%, then actually pensioners drop from, I think there were 65% no in 2014 to 50-50. And of course, there is a massive majority amongst young people and of every age group leading up to pensioners so if pensioners drop to 50-50, then the independence referendum's already won. You just have to put together an economic plan that they believe and that includes dignity for pensioners, because that's what we're talking about here. We can afford it and we should afford it. And in fact, what is a country for? What is a society for or an economy for if it isn't to actually make sure that your people are looked after? We're a wealthy country and wealthy countries shouldn't have poor people and independence will give us the ability to make that statement a reality. Cheers. Okay, Gordon, thanks very much for that. Uh, quite a lot of info in there, interesting stuff. Um, right, um, next person I want to introduce is uh, Jim Walker. Um, uh, Jim uh, is the Chief Economist at Althea Capital, um, which is an independent research platform in the Asia Pacific region. And um, prior to joining uh, Alethea, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Jim, probably not. <laughs> he was the founder and chief economist at Asianomics uh, Group. So, Jim, if you can maybe expand a bit and uh, say, excuse me, but the, uh, the bad pronunciation there. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, everybody, for inviting me along. Um, yes, it's, uh, it's a tough one. It's Alethea Capital, I'm afraid. Uh, it, uh, just for anybody that wants to look it up, it's, uh, it's the ancient Greek for truth. And actually, I think that's a good way to, to start off with one of my interests in, in pensions, because there's not an awful lot of truth told about pensions, uh, especially in the Western world, the developed world. And I think Craig uh, has probably alluded a wee bit to that in his introduction about what questions he wants to be asked. Uh, because to be quite honest, I don't think we can afford anything like what Gordon's talking about uh, as a rich country, because 
And there's no country in Europe can actually afford to keep paying pensions at the level that they're at. And this is one of the, the elements of research that we've uh, been doing at Aletheia and the Asianomics before that, uh, over the last few years, uh, essentially in the, the uh, putting into context the emerging markets to our clients, because of course our clients are mostly interested in what's going on in China and Indonesia and India and the Philippines rather than what's going on in Scotland. But uh, it was looking at that uh, backdrop that uh, it was really the, the, the kind of catalyst for me writing a, a report a few years ago called World War III. Um, now, that, that was at the time that uh, we had Donald Trump in power and uh, all sorts of things going on between him and, and China in particular. Uh, but it was nothing to do with uh, geopolitics uh, because the, the strap line on that report was the coming war between generations. And what it was really all about was the fact that uh, up until now, uh, and actually up until only around about 2004, it was very easy and easy to pay pensions and to promise the earth on pensions. And that's what governments have done uh, over the course of the last 50 to 70 years, um, because there was a, a phalanx of workers coming through to pay the pensions that uh, had been essentially promised by governments, but never actually funded by governments. And that remains the case today, but there's a big problem. Uh, there's a demographic time bomb going off in Europe um, in particular, where there really just isn't enough young people to pay the pensions, because up until now, pensions have always just been paid out of recurrent income, except in countries that have introduced things like superannuation uh, and provident funds. Now, that's one of the things that we were talking about when I was doing some of the ALBA work uh, in the lead up to the, the, the last election, that uh, we need to properly focus on how we can promise a pension in an independent Scotland. And I think that is a true focus uh, in terms of how we could possibly lose the next referendum if we don't address it. How we can promise a better pension, and that means being honest about funding it and how we find those funds because we don't have the young folk to keep paying the pensions that have been promised at the moment. And if you think that uh, I'm afraid doubling the, uh, the UK pension up towards the European average is, uh, is going to be the future of uh, the advanced economies in Europe, it's much more likely that they'll be coming down to our average in the UK rather than us going up to them, uh, as I say, given the demographic time bomb that's going off there. Economists are always keen to keep things upbeat, so I'll leave it at that. Okay, Jim, thanks very much for that. Well, obviously, we're, we're going to have some uh, conflicting views here tonight as well, but it is a very complicated subject. Um, there's going to be a, a lot of discussion around it, so it's, it's good that we're doing it. Okay, so on to the last of my introductions tonight, and um, that's going to be Bill Johnson. Uh, Bill is the chair of the Scottish Seniors Alliance, has been for the last five years. And um, he's dealt a lot with advocacy to the Scottish government uh, on relevant issues. So I'm going to pass over to him now and ask him to uh, tell us a bit more about it. OK, thanks for that, Ken. Uh, just to be correct, uh, I'd stopped being chair of the SNSA some years back, but I was chair for about five years and before that an active trade unionist. So kind of activism of one sort and another's in the bloodstream and carries on. Just the fact that I'm retired and old doesn't stop you being an activist. Uh, as far as 
pensions considered. I'd like to pick up some of the things from Jim's talk. I reckon the horizon for a lot of this is the aging population. Uh, and that, I think, needs to become a kind of key uh, issue in political discourse and strategy. At the moment, we've, we're boxed off into things like pensions, and it, it tends to present the view that pensions are just kind of an old people's issue. And obviously, from what Jim's saying, it's a young people's issue as well, because one day they'll want pensions. And cracking the, uh, the difficulties that Jim has outlined is, is going to be quite an important issue for us uh, as an independent country. And I think there are dangers at the moment from that kind of old age dependency ratio framing of things. And the big danger is ageism. Uh, older people are starting to become to be seen as a problem. They're a burden. Uh, they're troublesome. They get in the way. Uh, and if it wasn't for them, young people could look forward to a nice, fine, stable financial future. And there are plenty of characters out there who will quite deliberately promote that sort of idea to, to create division and get young and old people kind of uh, at each other's throats. So if you want an independent Scotland to be cohesive, then I think that's another reason for solving some of the dilemmas that the future of pensions have created for us. Ageism, I think, is, is, is a commonly used term to, you know, to, to kind of umbrella some of the points I've made. And it was disappointing, I think, looking through the manifestos for the, the main ones anyway, for the Scottish elections, very little said about that. And that shouldn't be the case. I mean, one of the things that the Alliance uh, helped to achieve, I think, was to get the Scottish government to introduce a minister for older people, currently Christina McKelvey. So there's a pressure point there uh, and a focal point there for some of these issues. But I'd come back to the starting point that really the ageing of the population is kind of a key to this. You know, how are we going to deal with the ageing population overall, because healthcare will come into that, the length of the, the, the working life, uh, if you've got people living well on into their 70s, could they work on into their 70s? And if so, what terms and conditions? Uh, would? So those are a couple of things that uh, I think need to, 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 to be brought out and hopefully we'll hear a bit about them tonight. As to the way forward, challenging the status quo, I don't think anyone who's spoken has said that pensions are, are fine, it's all solved, no problem at all. There are challenges there to be met. Uh, we need a new blueprint for them, and I don't think we should be completely constrained by the old world of the age dependency ratio. Craig mentioned uh, the idea of universal basic income uh, as possibly being part of a blueprint, and maybe he'll tell us more about that later on. So those are a few, you know, kind of things just to, to throw into the pot and, and stir it up and hopefully get people discussing the matter. Thanks. Okay. Thanks very much for that, Bill. So that's uh, all of our panel for this evening. So we're going to move on to the questions now, and they're coming in uh, thick and fast on the uh, on the uh, chat side. Um, I'm going to go and have a wee look at them in a minute and, and pick up some of them. But we have had questions coming in uh, earlier on uh, today and yesterday um, from, uh, from people. So I'm going to kick off with one um, we got uh, by email a couple of days ago, in fact. This is from David. Um, and he's asking on his own behalf <clears throat> and on the behalf of some other friends he has. Now, they've all got uh, workplace pensions, which are currently administered uh, in England. doesn't say if they're actually English companies, but administered in, in England and, of course, currently paid in, in sterling. And what their concern is in the future, if um, Scotland has, as we all expect it to, uh, I think, uh, have its own currency, 
and that currency appreciates against sterling, um, the effect that will have on his pension, because the conversion then from sterling to the new Scots currency would mean that his um, pension effectively would be less than he's getting just now. Um, so I'd like to ask you how you would uh, how you would answer that uh, particular query. Um, so I'll come first to uh, to Craig, if I may. Yeah. So. This is going to be one of the big questions about independence. Um, in, in some ways, it's logistically not that difficult in that a lot of these companies are multinational anyway. They're used to splitting accounts across companies. They may, they'll probably end up, you know, if they don't have a branch in Scotland to deal with Scot Scottish uh, financial regulations, they'll form one and they'll transfer assets over. Um, so the, the, the backroom stuff is stuff that a lot of these companies, Jim will be able to talk about this, and a lot of these companies deal with on a daily basis anyway, it's just going to be a new line in their ledgers. But that choice over, you know, do you still draw your pension in, in sterling or do you take it in a new Scottish currency is, is probably going to have to be made. Um, Will the Scottish currency go up versus sterling or down versus sterling? I'll, I'll rely on a, a bit of wisdom I got from a uh, a mentor in the financial sector said, if anyone can accurately predict which way a currency market is going to go, um, there wouldn't be a currency market because that person would have all the money. Um, there are things that Scottish government could do to, to, to make things easier. They, you could put in protections against exchange rate um, fluctuations. You could offer support if, if uh, currency fluctuations go above a certain uh, limit. You could outright peg the Scottish currency to sterling and, and alleviate the, the, the exchange rate that way. Um, so there are options um, and it's one that we are going to have to discuss in great detail, mindful of these situations, mindful that there's probably going to be transactions going the other way as well from people in the rest of the UK who have their, their private pension administered by a bank in Scotland. Okay, thanks very much. Um for that, uh, Craig. Um, Gordon, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, the Scottish government's current policy is not to have a different uh, currency after independence. So, you know, you have to take that into account. One of the reasons that they actually uh, are keen on for uh, a transition period, if you want to call it that, having the same currency as the rest of the UK is so that there aren't pensions issues like this. So you can just say your pension will be worth exactly the same after independence as it is before. There won't be any currency issues. And that takes away a lot of the fear factor around pensions. So that's one of the, the, the rationales that they would use. Another one, and you know, I don't have all the money in the world, but if I did, I'd bet it on after independence, the value of sterling dropping uh, when Scotland becomes an independent country. Um, and if we're using the same currency, as the rest of the UK, then our currency will go down with them. Uh, and that is a good thing because it will allow us to increase our exports uh, and also will probably increase our exports uh, to the rest of the UK because the, the rest of the world will, uh, their products will become more expensive uh, to the rest of the UK. So even if there is some trade border friction, uh, if we are using sterling, then there's those two benefits there. Um, the flip side of that is that a lot of people believe that if you launch your own currency, you can just print as much money as you want because a, a, a sterling, not a sterling, a sovereign currency owner can, can print as much more currency as they want. And that's a sort of MMT approach. Uh, I don't hold with that at all. I certainly don't hold that a new currency can behave that way. 
I do believe that there's a lot more monetary policy flexibility available than we're actually allowed, uh, than, than we've been seeing from certainly right-wing governments uh, across the, the world in normal times, but in emergency times, such as the banking crash and such as the health crisis, uh, governments all over the world have been printing as much money as they wanted. And this kind of goes back to the can, can we afford to increase pensions thing, and I think we'll probably talk about that later. But at this moment in time, the Scottish government's policy isn't to launch a currency that will be free floating and have a different value from the rest of the UK. And you have to take that into account when you're talking about pensions. Uh, and so all of that has to be considered as well at the same time. Okay, thanks for that, Gordon. Yeah, as you say, um, we don't know exactly how the currency scenario is going to work out and when or indeed if we will move to a Scottish currency and see how long it will be pegged, if it is pegged to... Uh, to sterling and whether it will free float, etc. So it is um, something that's a, a bit fluid. What would be your take on that, Jim? Yeah, I, I mean, going, going back to the, the actual question about uh, the, the, the pensions being set in sterling at the moment, well, that, that's just the fact of the matter. And I'm afraid up until a point of uh, independence, whether it's the, the day of the referendum or the actual day uh, where we we move off on our own, which would maybe, maybe be two years later. The fact is that uh, the, the pension funds that people have got in workplace pensions are in sterling. Now, mostly in sterling. To be quite honest, they're actually in a lot of other currencies as well, um, but they're usually hedged back, back into sterling. So um, pension managers will be investing in the United States, investing in Asia, hopefully, if there's any sense. Um, they'll, they'll be investing in bonds in Europe, which are uh, priced in euros. So they're all over the place with uh, their investments, but they retrace everything back into a sterling value. And a lot of that's through a hedged basis. But the fact of the matter is that this is one of the big problems that we in the independence movement have to face, that uh, we've got to be able to convince people who have pensions, and that's everybody, by the way. It's not just a small minority. The state pension is quite different, but when we come to workplace pensions and uh, private pensions, these are all priced at the moment in sterling. And what we've got to do in the independence movement is actually make some guarantees, which are not going to be particularly, uh, what would you say, pleasant things for us to do as uh, potentially a government of an independent Scotland, because we might lose some money in the first instances. But we've got to make guarantees to make sure that people are comfortable with their workplace pensions and how they're valued against a Scottish currency, if that one comes into to being. I completely take uh, Gordon's point that that's not the SNP's position just now. Uh, it happens to be almost everybody else's position in the independence movement, but not the SNP's. Um, so, yes, there's that element to it that uh, we might well be tracking sterling for a long, long time. But it'll still open us to the, uh, the criticism from uh, unionists that unless we follow sterling, so why then move away from the union, uh, there's going to be big problems for Scottish pensioners. Now, I think there's ways of answering that issue, but we have to be realistic and we have to be honest with people uh, when we're doing that. And that honesty starts with saying your pension as it is just now, up until the point of independence, is priced in sterling and you will have sterling assets to take forward into an independent Scotland. What we might then be able to do, and what I would expect uh, a Scottish negotiating position to, to be, 
is that we would be saying we were we are taking steps in terms of uh, hedging those uh, funds and also in terms of enhancing those funds uh, through the, the period in which there could be volatility in the currency if such volatility volatility exists. Now, it might well actually be that if uh, the Scottish pound was to fall against sterling, those people are much better off. But uh, that, that uh, I, I, in the same uh, vein as uh, I think both Gordon and Craig don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I do think that Scotland would have a, a much stronger potential currency. But uh, the, the, the point is that this is a reality and it's not one that we have addressed as a movement yet in any way that I think could convince those no voters in the older age groups and even potentially, and this is where I think the unionists will come at us in the next independence referendum, they'll be talking to 40 year olds, not to 65 year olds and saying, do you know what is going to happen to your workplace pension? And we've got to be ready for that. And I think there are answers but I'd be giving them away if I was uh, uh, going to tell everybody just now, because uh, these are for Alba to uh, bring forward. Right. OK, thanks for that, Jim. Well, you heard it there first. Alba have the answer for us. Um, so we'll look forward to, to hearing that in due course. But I mean, serious, obviously a, a serious situation to be looked at and something, um, as you say, the movement has to come up with a, a reasonable answer to about how we we would handle the discrepancies that might come up. Um, so, Bill, do you want to add something to that? I mainly to underline a couple of points. I agree with Jim. I think the 40-year-olds are quite key to all of this. This is something that came out of the work I was doing in the past with older people. That The more you looked at it, the more it became plain that the folk who really needed the benefits, that uh, a good social welfare system for older people were 20 years back down the line. And if these things can't be put in place in terms of strategy for uh, persuading people to be independent, then they won't vote to be independent because they won't see it as in their interest or their family's interest. So I think we need to pitch the independence case in that direction. Uh, the other thing I would say, which is kind of on the same kind of theme, is we need to have that done in advance. Uh, and it may well be that there are several scenarios. SNP's got one. Alba, presumably, hopefully, will have one. Uh, other commentators like Commonweal chip in their, their two hatens worth. Uh, but it needs to be perhaps put together as a set of scenarios, perhaps, and debated much more openly than it is, and, and not relegated to the sidelines or left to uh, behind the scenes government, civil servants, technocrats to sort it all out. I think everybody needs to, to, to have a, a stake in, in this discussion. And how we get to that, I think, is going to be one of the big challenges for us. I always make the point that uh, Scotland could become independent at a given date and time. And by midnight, the, 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 there will be an independent Scotland and it will have a population. And that will be the Scottish people. And if we don't have sorted out some of these issues about what the pensions uh, state pensions for Scottish people, future of their private pensions of Scottish people are, then we're going to be in deep shit, to be honest with you all. Uh, so there has to be uh, a period of time, and that may be a year, 18 months or whatever, uh, to, to look to, to be able to answer these questions. We've got a bit of time, it would seem, before an independence referendum, and that time really has got to be uh, leveraged uh, as, as best we can. Right, okay, thanks uh, very much for that, Bill. I got you first. That's right. Okay, yep. I'm running through. Sometimes 
forget who I was spoken to. Okay, thanks very much. Well, that that's obviously a, an area which which needs work on, um, so we can convince people uh, this is the the right way to go. So um, the next question I have um, is uh, actually going back a bit uh, to what. Uh, uh, Gordon and Jim were talking about in their introductions, but uh, this is a question we've we've had um, since at the 2019 SNP conference, members voted to increase the state pension to the EU average in an independent Scotland. Um, unionists are likely to claim that this would not be affordable. Uh, how would this work in practice? And um, how what would happen with the Scottish government have to top up existing uh, pensions? And how would it be paid for? So that's going back a wee bit to what Gordon and Jim were talking about. So we'll maybe look at that in a, a wee bit more detail. Um, so if I can start, uh, first of all, with your, yourself, Craig. Uh, well, I'm not a member of the SNP. It's not my party. It's not my policy. So uh, I'm not going to sit here and defend it or tear it down particularly. Um, <laughs> it's a cop-out answer, I know. What I, what I would, what I, I'll, I'll maybe do to just sort of change the discussion on that slightly is, uh, and it does pull in that, that uh, lowest state pension in Europe figure that we see, and that's what a lot of folk really pin on. Um, really what we have in the UK is a situation where actually, yes, the, the state pension is rock bottom uh, compared to a lot of other countries. Overall replacement income among pensioners who have other pensions like workplace pensions, private pensions, or capital investments, you know, locked up in their, their, their housing. Once you factor all that in, um, pensioner income in the UK is a little below average. Um, but what we see there is you have a situation where in the UK, people are very much dependent on those private pensions and that, and that locked up capital rather than the state for their pension, whereas in some countries, uh, notably Northern Europe, up, sometimes up to 90% of your pension income can come from public sourcing. So I would suggest maybe another way of looking at this is to not just fixate on the state pension, but look at that pensioner income in the round. If we're looking at, at those capital investments, which are largely about housing, we also need to sort of deflate the housing bubble. That could affect people's future income if they're currently relying on it. So we need to do that in a managed way. We do need to look at the, the, the private pension market uh, sector from the previous question, um, but also in, 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 in very serious problems like what happens if there's a market crash and you're two years from retirement? What happens if there's a global pandemic and you're a couple of years from retirement? You lose those savings and you don't have time to build them up again. We have a situation where people are not in that job for life with a defined um, uh, a defined benefit pension that will pay a fraction of their final salary. Those just basically don't exist in, in most sectors anymore. We, should, we, we change jobs and companies very frequently, and that fragments our private pensions. Uh, I think the average is your, your average pensioner now will have six workplace, uh, 11 workplace pensions over, over six companies. Um, so maybe we need to look at a better way of consolidating them and, and, and providing stability to, to people's pensions. <laughs> what I'm all getting to this is, yeah, we maybe should look at the state pension. We maybe should look at upping it slightly. But there is a broader question there on pension income in the whole. And it's not going to be as simple as just, get, just add more to the state pension, although that might be part of it. OK, thanks very much for that, Craig. Um, Gordon, what about yourself? 
Okay, a couple of things here. I mean, um, Bill uh, before said um, uh, about uh, the S&P have one thing and Alwa have another and the Greens have another, etc. And I just and he said the Conway will kick in ideas as well. I just want to make sure that that, that I know Bill. I think don't think Bill thinks this, but I'm not speaking for the SNP. I'm not a member of the SNP, and in fact, I think I probably left the SNP before anyone else on, on this call did. <laughs> it was before the referendum the first time round. Um, now. Uh, so, but I was just pointing out that was their policy. I happen to also know that the question's slightly incorrect because the 2019 S&P conference said, voted not to raise to the European average, but to implement a research plan to actually look at different ways that they might be able to uh, reach that. So uh, they, they haven't committed to that, though it was very heavily caveated. Uh, that said, I don't think the SNP have actually done anything about putting that committee together to look at it. So I don't know whether they have any answers or not. The second thing is, and I want you to, 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 to come back to, to Craig here, uh, he said, we don't just look at the state pensions, we look at private pensions. And yes, overall, you're going to look at the whole thing and you say, yeah, private pensions do make up an awful lot of people's earnings. And, and that's why there isn't mass pension or poverty. And by that, I mean like 99% of pensioners aren't in poverty. But Let's talk about why we have the lowest state pension in the EU, in the developed world. It's because government after government in London wants to force people to take out private pensions, right? Why do they want to force people in Scotland, in my native northeast of England, in poorer areas of the UK? People who have low wages can't afford to take out these pensions. So they have to rely on the state pension. And that's what's important. There are 170,000 pensioners in Scotland living in poverty right now because they didn't earn enough, or if they were, especially if they were female, weren't in uh, work enough to, 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 to be able to afford to. But the reason that the, the UK state pension is so low is because it forces you to buy private pensions. And the reason they want to force you to buy private pensions is to boost the city of London. So in order to actually boost the economy of London, Pensioners in all of the regions throughout the UK that are not as wealthy are forced into poverty. It isn't something we can say, oh, we can or can't afford it. We can maybe afford a little bit of this and we can afford it. What we have to say is there's actually a level which is ethical or of, of morality and currently it's below it. And therefore, we need to say, how do we afford that? And maybe anticipating that the order of things is that Jim's going to go and now for something completely different as soon as it moves to, moves to him after me. Uh, but uh, how can we afford it? Okay, I'm just going to throw something in here. If we raise the, the state pension in Scotland uh, by £50 a week, it will cost an extra £2.3 billion. Wow, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Except, A, it's not, because if you look at the UK government's own estimates as to how much they lose in tax evasion, corporate tax evasion every year, Scotland's share of that is 2.9 billion. So if you just change the rules on corporate tax evasion, you make a profit on raising pensions 50 pounds. There's a way to do this. And the final thing I'll add in, and I'm sure Jim will agree with me on this actually, that if you give money, if you give corporations tax cuts, then corporations will probably invest in robots and technology and self-service till systems and all these sort of things. If you give pensioners money, they go out and they spend it. They spend it in the local economy. There's VAT. They, there's small businesses growing, employing more people. There's, there's new wages and all these sort of things. And actually, if the pensioners spend it, it comes back. And so basically, we've, if we've got a situation where we have 
170,000 pensioners living in poverty, they're not actually contributing, and a lot more, another couple of hundred thousand are not really contributing to the economy. If they start contributing to the local economy, if they give them money, they buy the winter coat, the new shoes, that sort of thing. They buy a present for the grandkids, et cetera. They go out and they spend it and it stimulates the economy and the money turns over in the economy and the speed of money in the, 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 that it turns over in the economy increases and that grows the economy. And you get an awful lot of that tax back as well. So there are ways and means to pay for a better pension. Uh, you know, and we've got to start understanding that with another 240,000 pensioners in the next 25 years coming onto the books in Scotland, that it doesn't, you know, it, we're going to have so many people that are not economically active that we're not going to really have an economy anyway, unless we figure this out. So this is one of the great problems, pensions time bomb. And a final thing I'll add is that I was actually lost my gig as an economics um, uh, uh, columnist for the Herald and Sunday Herald in the 90s after I wrote a piece about called the pensions time bomb that said we would never be able to afford pensions in the future. Um, so this isn't a new idea. We've always known this is coming. Uh, and everyone's just saying, oh, let's just keep with the status quo. Let's try and keep or just squeeze it down, etc. It's not working. We've got a huge crisis coming. We've got to deal with it. And we can afford to deal with it. But it's going to take some really um, creative thinking. Right. OK, Gordon, thanks very much for that. Okay, Jim, your chance to disagree with them if you want. No, no, no. Uh, actually, I, I kind of agree with most of what Gordon's saying there. Um, that uh, if, uh, I don't at all disagree with the fact that uh, uh, an awful lot of government, uh, would you say, time and effort has been uh, pushing uh, private pensions and the like. Where I would disagree with you, Gordon, is that uh, that has actually benefited Scotland much more in the city of London, given that 24% of the pension managers in the UK are actually Scottish based, uh, which is a wee bit higher than our uh, population percentage in the, in the country. But uh, the, 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 there are elements in here that uh, I, I think are uh, very important. The, 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 we, we've talked a wee bit of European averages. I think Craig was uh, alluding to <clears throat> not alluding, he was explaining quite well the, the fact that we do need to look at a wee bit more widely than just the state pension. We also need to look at uh, what other countries charge their pensioners, uh, which we don't do. Uh, so, for example, the National Health Service at the moment is still free. Um, there, there are certain elements in the, uh, that, that pensioners benefit from in either Scottish policy or, uh, or UK policy that European people don't have the same. Um, you go to a doctor in Europe and you will pay. Uh, you go to the hospital in Europe and you will pay. Uh, and that's the same for, for most of the rest of the world. What I would uh, like to mention, though, is that, that, that there is a, an element that we've got away from in the UK and in Scotland, which is the savings culture. Now, that's not something that Gordon wants to hear about because he wanted the spending culture there. I wasn't quite sure whether all the pensioners were going to be banned from buying imports because uh, that would actually amount to economic leakage. But uh, uh, if we assume that they're, uh, they're buying Scottish goods, that's great. But at the same time, the, 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 the savings culture has gone to a large extent. And that, that's been a process over the years. Whereas in places like Asia, uh, that's not the case. But sometimes it's forced on them. It's not a 
uh, question of Asians being particularly um, thrifty. Uh, in, in Hong Kong, for example, my only uh, pension source in the future is uh, a thing called the, the Mandatory Provident Fund. Um, it's not a very big amount that you can put in every month, uh, and it's a pretty paltry pension by the end of the day, but uh, it is actually yours, and you know what it is every year, and you can track it. You can actually track it every day if you want. Uh, you can change providers. You can change your uh, your investments, but it's up to you, and you're forced to save into that. It's the same in Singapore. When I lived in Singapore, uh, the, the mandatory provident fund, I think, is capped at 1500 which is uh, £150 a month uh, for everybody in Hong Kong. That would include the high earners. But in Singapore, um, you paid 20% of your salary uh, into the Central Provident Fund. And that was then recorded as your uh, pot uh, for when you could retire. You could also borrow against it to buy a house um, during the course of your, your working life. Then you go to Australia, and it's all about superannuation. Um, and people are paying into that all the time as well. Now, I, I think that really is a culture that we've got to get back to because try and bear in mind one thing about pensions. The, the way that states introduced them, and it's still the case to a large extent today, nobody ever intended to pay them. You know, in 1926, when the UK introduced the old age pension uh, at 65 for males, life expectancy was 58. When Bismarck introduced the first pensions in Germany, uh, the, the, they introduced them from the age 70. Life expectancy was 51. Now, governments have been lying to us for, from time immemorial about pensions and about benefits and about well-being, I'm afraid, as well, Gordon. They, 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 they love to promise. Politicians will promise us the earth. But we've got to get back to us being in charge of our own destiny and us taking responsibility. That's what I want for Scotland, taking responsibility for our future. And that means that we've actually got to take some responsibility for our old age uh, lifestyle um, by saving during our working life. And for those who can't do that because they can't work or because uh, uh, they're in circumstances that don't allow them to, to accumulate those savings, that's what the state pension's for, and that's what it should be. That's when it should be raised to a very significant level above where it is just now. That's a different, uh, that's all about priorities. That's not about uh, the way to make sure that our pensions in the future uh, support our lifestyles and those that we want to, to live. Okay, thanks very much for that, Jim. Well, I think what's coming across really from uh, from everybody here, this isn't just a, a question around independence. I think everybody feels that uh, we probably need to do an awful lot to change our, our whole pension system. And as Jim's talking about there, just uh, change our culture, perhaps in fact go back to a culture we used to have, which we haven't had for a number of years. Okay. I'm going to uh, move on now. Um, oh, I've got Bill back. So I thought Bill had had been lost there for a minute, but he's back. So, Bill, what's your take? I think, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to reassure Gordon, I'm not in the SNP either. So uh, I wonder if anybody is anymore by the sounds of it. It's, uh, yeah, I think to listen to what folk have been saying in my own thoughts, uh, maybe we could turn the, you know, the language around a wee bit and start talking about... Uh, uh, 
sort of retirement income rather than pensions. Pensions draw people's minds instantly to a certain place. And it used to be 65. Uh, and for many people in the employment, it used to be, you know, the report to the superannuation committee to the annual general meeting of the union branch or whatever. Uh, and perhaps if we looked at it more broadly as retirement income and started to think about how would we define that? Uh, how would we explain to people how they might contribute to it, how their employer might contribute to it, et cetera. All, all the way up to, to looking at, would we have to change the terms and conditions of people's employment? And what would be the implications for people's salaries? Uh, how would we relate uh, these things, which on, on the face of it, uh, you know, you might say, well, what's that got to do with uh, your, your, your pension, the, the work that you're doing when you're 20? Uh, and I think those questions need to be uh, explained to people a wee bit more more clearly than they have been to, up till now. And I guess in terms of strategy for independence, it, it keeps coming back for me to this idea, what are we going to put into this, or under this word called independence? And I keep hearing over and over and over and over again for the last few years, NDRF2. And I feel that sometimes there are people out there who simply want to rerun 2014. And I think one of the things we learned from 2014 was that we still had quite a lot to learn uh, in terms of putting together uh, a package that could include retirement income, that could include changes to the length of the working life uh, and all the training, sport and development that would go with that. It could involve the way that uh, we dealt with climate change and how the need to deal with climate change could be translated into actual jobs and so forth in the economy to, to grow the Scottish economy somewhat. And there has to be a means of doing that. And at the moment, I'm afraid I don't, I'm not confident the SNP have the means. They should. I mean, they've got an umpteen M MSPs, uh, they've got helpers, assistants, they've got the civil service to call on and 100,000 members. Uh, okay, Nicola's committed to, to, to managing the rest of the pandemic, but surely along the way, uh, people should be having the kind of conversations we are having tonight and answering the questions that have been fired at us. Uh, and we don't get paid to be, to, be, to be government ministers. We're doing this because we're, we're activists and, and uh, you know, have a particular desire to see Scotland not just being independent, but being a better place for us, to live, old codgers like us to live in, and for the younger people coming on behind us. To, uh, and I think maybe looking at it, but at the same time, quite systematically, would be quite a good strategy for us to adopt. And I would hope in, in pensioners for independence would, would speak on that at some point, you know, speak your age to power, as you might say. Thanks. Okay, thanks very much uh, for, uh, for that one, Bill. Um, Let's move on to uh, another question now. This is one that came in on, on the chat. And uh, th this is one I'm sure the, the ladies will be interested in um, because uh, there was a lot of controversy uh, about uh, the WASPy women missing out on, uh, on pensions they, they, they should have got. So do we feel that um, in an independent Scotland that the state pension age might be um, you know, reduce women back to 60 or perhaps some form of, of compensation for what they've lost. Do we think that should happen? Uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think to that, Craig? Uh, well, my mum's one of the WASPy women. 
um, and ended up having to work an extra four years because of the changes. Um, she, she's a carer and, uh, you know, going doing you know, a very physical job in her mid-60s. She has arthritis um, and she just keeps, she, she's a tank, she just keeps going, uh, works 50 hours a week, mostly through choice. Anyway, <laughs> that's... Um, my feeling is, and this really complicates pension planning. It is so difficult to do, you know, plan to plan for changes to, to to pensions because you are talking about time horizons on the order of decades in a world where electoral cycles are on the order of a few years. So the person who makes the change is, you know, almost certainly going to be out of office when the change really kicks in, and you know they might not even be alive by the time a lot of the changes kick in. Um, my feeling is that changes like that shouldn't have affected people who were already in work because it does cause these anomalies. It, you know, you should, if, if the pension age had to go up, it should have affected you know, the generation who hadn't started working yet. Um, and that should be a principle that should be considered when, when the time comes to make other such changes. Um, the, the WASPI changes... Sorry to say, are probably done. I'm not sure if it will be possible to reduce the the retirement age, um, you know, in 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 the years to come. Um, I think the equalisation um, between males and females did have to happen. It was just done in the wrong way. Could compensation be offered? Certainly, there is a generation there who have been very badly affected, and if if there is a way of doing that. I don't have the answers on on how that could could be done or should be done. If there is a way of doing that, it should be looked at. Right. Okay, Craig. Thanks for that. Um, so, yeah, your view is that if we if we can bring some form of compensation in uh, in an independent Scotland, then we, we we should do that. Gordon, what's what's your take on it? Yeah, I think it's an absolute disgrace. Um, and yeah, I think that what we've got to look at is some form of compensation. The idea that um, uh, the change was made without any notice, I don't think you could necessarily make it people who are not yet working. I think it, you know that, that's too long. But certainly, if you're going to bring in a change, you need at least 10 years of notice for, in order for people to be able to adjust uh, their financial plans, etc. Um, and I think you know people now know that there are plans to increase the, the pensions age. And I actually don't have a problem with the pensions age increasing as long as it's done fairly and properly and with enough notice, because we are living longer. You can't expect to retire at, uh, at 50. <laughs> and, you know, and, and by the way, I completely agree with, with uh, Jim, the, the, the Germans never expected anyone to, to live other than royals to that age. You know, it's, it's a story I tell all the time when I try and explain pensions, that, that it was always a Ponzi scheme. We just tried to make it not one uh, for a while. So uh, we agree on that. So, yeah, I think there needs to be some form of compensation uh, in there uh, as well for Waspy women. And I think making that offer is, is, is actually something it would be very clever for any political organisation to do. Uh, again, not because it's just clever politics, but because it's the right thing to do. Okay, thanks, uh, Gordon. Okay, that's two definitely for compensation. Jim, what about you? What do you think we should do? Uh, yes, well, um, actually, my, my sister-in-law is one of the waspy women as well. Uh, so I feel for Craig and his mother because, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's sent her to an early retirement, my, my sister-in-law, because she, she's been so uh, overwhelmed by mental kind of problems with the, the whole thing. 
Um, so it's a really uh, horrible situation for, for women who did not see this coming. And the reason they didn't see it coming because they were lied to by politicians time and time again. And the reason that we've got to this stage is that uh, at one point there was just blind panic that took over Westminster when it realised that uh, it had promised far too much and the various generations of governments had promised far too much and there was no way that they could finance it. And then the people who uh, suffered most were women who have uh, the big problem of living even longer than men. So they were the prime candidates given that they had uh, a lower retirement age and therefore uh, with a lower retirement age and a longer life expectancy, uh, they're the big problem for the future generations to, uh, to, to try and pay for. So that's why the government chose them. It was just an awful way to do it. In terms of compensation, then you've just got to make a choice in terms of your policy that if there's going to be compensation for the women, we've got to work out what we, we cut back on. Now, I would have no problems in coming up with a solution for that because defence expenditure in my country would be nowhere near 2% of GDP. In fact, it wouldn't even be near 1% of GDP. Um, and there would be no tridents. Uh, submarines are trident nuclear weapons. So I would be able to finance compensation for the, the WASPY women without any problem whatsoever. And I would be very happy to make that promise if I was a politician. I'm kind of glad that uh, that's not the case uh, even after the parliamentary election. But uh, that's the problem that we face, that uh, when you trust governments to deliver on the policies of uh, generation after generation of them, uh, you're trusting the wrong people. We've got to take it into our own hands. Okay, Jim. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for that. I'll also declare a, a personal interest here because uh, my wife is one of the WASPy women. So we'll perhaps make this a, a, a clean sweep because I'm sure this is something that uh, Bill will have uh, some thoughts on. What do you think? Oh yeah, Bill? I agree with Jim and and the others. I think uh, the the WASPy women have been lied to and cheated. Uh, and when you think what would happen if uh, somebody lied to and cheated a, a powerful, important person in our society. There'd be a team of expensive lawyers trampling all over the people who were guilty. Uh, and they, they, they'd be getting their, their due dibs from the courts in short order. Might take them a year or two, but they would get it. Uh, contrast that with the Waspy women who are women, unequally treated normally, powerless, etc. And you can see that the contrast is quite stark and, and quite unacceptable. Again, agree with Jim on the, the idea of how do we finance it. So we seem to, all through my life, people have nodded through more and more and more money on nuclear weapons, which have never been used. Uh, and it would seem, hopefully, never will be used. But there never seems to be any difficulty finding money to finance uh, these gizmos. So it does seem to me to be pretty straightforward. Maybe even one less missile might cover the cost of compensating justly compensating the WASPy women. I think the last point I would make about it is it's a very, very clear example of what happens if you don't have agency. If you're relying on other people to tell you what your rights are and to tell you what you're due. And if you're not in a situation, trade unions help, but uh, the, 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 there has to be other societal powers that folk can call down on so that nobody finds themselves in this situation again. And as I say, if you're rich and powerful, it wouldn't happen. Uh, However, if you're not, 
uh, it'll happen again. And I think we have an, an independent Scotland find some way to make sure that ordinary people uh, are as secure in their beds at night uh, in terms of their pensions and so forth uh, as, uh, as, as the Duke of Buccleuch or whoever you might want to use as your, uh, as your epitome of these characters. That's, that's my take. So clean sweep it is, I think, is the... Okay, Bill, thanks very much uh, for that. Okay, I'm looking at uh, some other questions um, we have. Uh, we have a question here that says, is it really true that the state pension is paid from current taxes? I can answer that for you immediately. The answer is yes. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? Um, right, yeah. This is uh, one I think you know the answer to we can go through quite quickly. And this is someone that this is a, someone that's coming up uh, with a question to do with the, a debating point in the in the, the independence um, sort of uh, debate as a whole. Um, and that is union aside debate with a point to the state pension being paid from current NI contributions. How should I reply to this? Um, so I'll ask uh, Craig if you can tell us what you would say to that person. It's a bit more complicated than that. There is the, 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 the revenue from national insurance doesn't directly pay the state pension. The number of years that you pay national insurance determines the level of state pension you get, but the money just goes into the, the consolidated fund. There's no, there's no real hypothecation uh, about those pensions, uh, about that pension fund coming out of national insurance per se. Um, it does come out of current revenue. Uh, we do often talk about it, as we have in this panel tonight, in terms of that dependency ratio of workers to pensioners, uh, kind of giving the implication that income tax and national insurance pays for pensions. It's often sort of calculated, the affordability of the pension is sort of calculated in those terms. There is an argument to say we need to start breaking that link, something that Bill brought up. We need to start breaking that link of that dependency ratio between workers and pensioners. We we should be maybe looking at other ways that we can we can fund the pension. I'm going to get the MMT crowd uh, piling onto me for using that 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 phrase, but I don't have time to switch the lens into their mode of thinking for this talk. Um, we should be looking at how Scotland can invest in things like the Green New Deal that we need and do that in a way that can generate revenue for pensions. So um, perhaps using the National Investment Bank to start investing in um, in renewable schemes and social housing and things and using the rents and the revenue from them, uh, issue, issue bonds that pension companies can invest in and use the revenues from them to start, start bringing up um, pension income in general. I'd quite like to see a publicly owned option for the private pension, as is common in many countries. Uh, Sweden, notoriously, uh, or notably, uh, has a publicly owned pension that you can treat as a private pension. You can move it from job to job. Uh, so that helps avoid that fragmentation. But you could that pension pot could be investing in Scotland and, and using the revenue from the massive transformation we have to do in the Green New Deal to then in, to invest in the country, build up the things we need, and then provide an income for retirement. So yes, it's come, it comes out of current revenue, but there's no real reason it has to come out of national insurance precisely and it doesn't anyway at the end so maybe we need to look at this in a broader broader view 
Okay, thanks for that, uh, Craig. Uh, we're running a wee bit short of time and we've still got uh, a lot of questions to uh, come in. So I think we, it's fairly straightforward. People know that um, there uh, is current revenue is, is used to pay, to pay for pensions. So I think we're going to move on to uh, another question. And uh, if I can ask you chaps, um, maybe keep your questions or rather your answers a little bit shorter and we'll get through as, as many as we can in the time we have uh, we have remaining to us. So let me just pick out uh, another of those um, questions uh, to ask you. Uh, let's see now. Okay. Right. right, I've got a question here. Um, and that's how will Brexit impact on pensions in an independent Scotland, if at all? Um, Gordon, I'm going to ask you to answer answer that one if you think it will actually make any difference. How will Brexit uh, impact? Um, I guess, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a funny question because um, the UK, as part of the EU, had a pensions arrangement, uh, which meant that uh, people living in the EU um, uh, got their full pension, whereas in some countries, uh, such as Australia, I think, you don't actually get your full amount of pension if you live in Australia. I do know that there is an agreement right now that says that uh, if, you, if you actually lived in the EU before Brexit, uh, then you get your full pension. But I don't know the result of any negotiations, maybe someone else might do, uh, in terms of if you move to the EU now, does that make any difference? Uh, after uh, uh, after Brexit, um, haven't heard. Therefore, I assume that's not the case. So, um, but in terms of it's the biggest, the bigger issue isn't Brexit after independence, uh, and it will depend on. Uh, well, it won't depend on. But we are as a as a nation currently uh, the plan of our government is to actually rejoin the EU. It's a lot more complicated than that, and it will not be as easy as people think because of Brexit. We have been taken out uh, of the EU, whereas the last referendum, we were, we were still members, and there was an argument to be made about staying members. Um, but so, you know, in terms of how will Brexit impact on pensions after independence, doesn't really. Independence, though, as we've been talking about, has multiple uh, factors that will impact on it, and, and those have to be discussed, and those have to have answers. Um, the one thing I was going to say uh, as well, just to be a bit controversial and disagree with everybody, uh, I don't think pensions are necessarily paid out of current earnings. Uh, I think everything's paid for out of a combination of current earnings and borrowings of various kinds. Um, and you can talk about, oh, well, it's out of the, the National Insurance Fund and it's out of current earnings and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, if the National Insurance Fund were to increase or or if the tax earnings were to go up a little bit, they wouldn't just suddenly increase pensions as a result of that. So I'm not sure, so sure that, that we should think about it in those terms. Uh, I just think there's a, a pile of money that's available, which includes borrowing versus what we think will happen to the economy if we spend that money. And not deciding to increase pensions is actually just one of the many choices that we make. So I don't, I, I don't accept that there's a link and I think, I think Craig sort of said that anyway, but I don't accept there's a direct link between the amount of money available through taxation and national insurance and the size of the pensions. That's a, you know, we, can, we can break that link already. Uh, that's just a, 
um, what's the word, uh, it's the nomenclature of it as opposed to the, the reality, I think. All right. Okay, thanks for that, Gordon. Um, got another question here, uh, which I think is quite interesting. This is, comes from Phil, and he says, do we have any examples of how other countries that have recently become independent have handled pensions? He says, I haven't heard anything to the effect that people in such countries have lost their pensions. So also we have some, particularly sort of the ex-communist countries. Um, do they have any insight on, on how they handled pensions and what it meant? to them when they, they became independent from their, uh, well, from Russia or whoever it was that was uh, looking after them. Um, MD, got any insight on that? Um, oh, it's been it a while. Has, it, it, not really, I'm afraid. It's been a while since I looked at that. And a lot of these examples deal with countries that were in very, very different political and, and economic conditions uh, to the one that Scotland's, Scotland's facing. I don't have an easy answer for that. But I'm, it's actually one I'm going to go and look up. I've got some books on my shelf back there that probably deal with that. So uh, email me, whoever asked the question, email me and I'll, sort of, I'll try and find an answer for you. Can I suggest we have a prize for question of the night? Because uh, that's a really good one. Uh, <laughs> the one thing I will say is that if you look at the vast majority of countries, especially the ones that you would say are in Northern Europe uh, or, or uh, Europe at all, that have become independent, have become independent from communist states in my lifetime and as a result their economies have grown significantly after independence you could say ah well that's not necessarily going to be the case with us but as a result of their economies growing they have actually been able to pay higher pensions but i don't have the numbers to uh, to hand but the countries have become significantly wealthier uh, estonia latvia come to mind etc like that but yeah that's a great question and uh, like craig i think i think my research team is going to going to going to race craig's to see who can get the answer to that on a blog <laughs> okay well you heard it there folks you just go around all these blogs um and websites and see who gets the answer for that uh, first of all but it is it's, it's an interesting uh, question okay um let's see what else have we got here now okay uh, so cover that and right Yeah, I'm looking for something that maybe is a bit bit different from what uh, what we've covered so far. Um, this this is a question, and, and this is kind of the, the case at the moment. And um, I think I know what some of you are going to say, but see what you think to this. This is a question we had in uh, was that should workplace pensions uh, be mandatory in an independent Scotland, and if so, at what level um, should they be set? Now I think probably most people know that we do actually have the UK government introduced just a few years ago, uh, compulsory pensions. But how do we feel that should be that should be handled um, in an independent Scotland? Should we have a mandatory pensions, uh, a mandatory pension um, contributions? And what sort of level do you think we should be looking at? Um, I'll ask um, uh, Craig for that, first of all. Um, Broadly, yes, I think they should be mandatory. I think um, the, the, that was one of the, the kind of pension success stories of, 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 of that auto-enrolment um, was quite important. There's a really good bit, bit uh, really good books on behavioural economics that show why that's the case. Um, pension, pe you know, pe pension decisions, because of such a long time horizon, uh, humans just aren't equipped to think about them very well. 
Um, so, so it is a good thing. I think it should continue. I think we can reform the private pension market to a great degree. Um, some of the recent changes that the UK brought in to reduce fees um, have been have been good. Uh, they could go a bit further. There's still plenty of countries in Europe that, that charge fewer, uh, charge lower rates of fees on pensions. Uh, I'd particularly like to see it make, make it easier for people to transfer money from one pension pot to another. Um, that often has a very you know, substantial fee that makes it prohibitive. And that's why you end up with, as I said, 11 pension pots by the end of your life. And you don't know where any of them are. Um, Policies like bringing in a dashboard to, to allow you to, to monitor the pensions that have been faltering, uh, often because the companies don't really want their data alongside our competitors' data. And um, I think that probably has to get forced through. A big change I would like to see is the one I mentioned earlier. I would like to see a publicly owned workplace pension. Um, that that you can take from job to job, so you can you can enrol in your employer's favourite pension. You can enrol in another one if you like, but if you have that public pension, and you can take that from job to job easily, seamlessly without fees, that would allow you to build up a single pension pot by the end of your working life, and that would greatly simplify a lot of the problems in the private pension sector. Right. Okay. Thanks for that, Craig. So we are running a wee bit short in time, so um, I'm going to cut Jim and Gordon out. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and I'll throw this one uh, over to Bill to get his thoughts. I think you're on mute, Bill. Sorry, I'm off mute, hopefully. Yes, I think it should be mandatory. Uh, and uh, I did want people to hear me say that. I think it should be mandatory, and I think it should also be uh, negotiated. I think people should have the opportunity to, to actually get in there and negotiate the nitty gritty of things. Craig's right, you know, that uh, there's a need for clarity over your different pensions. I mean, I've had friends who've lived abroad and stuff and worked in different jobs and come back and come up to retirement and start scratching their heads about pensions they paid into maybe 20 years earlier. Uh, and they were lucky they got the money out. But I think, again, it's one of these things where I think individuals should have the opportunity to have some sort of uh, kind of equivalent of an MOT, if you like. So at various stages in their life, they can sit down and, and just survey the scene, uh, maybe go to a financial advisor and uh, get some advice about where they are and what's available to them and so on. I think possibly, probably, a lot of people don't do nearly enough of that. And I think that could encompass not only your financial health, but possibly your physical, mental health, uh, and, and other ways of, uh, of having a better life. Moment is all kind of left open very much to the marketplace and, you know, what kind of person you are, whether you're middle class or, or, or not, uh, as to whether you take advantage of what the market offers. So I think we should kind of demarketize some of these decision-making points in people's lives and create almost a, uh, a kind of option for folk to sit down their family, their friends, other people in their community, and discuss these things kind of in the way we've been discussing them tonight, but possibly in a more focused time frame. So you get the best of both worlds. You get the longer uh, perspective of the pensions, but you also get a shorter, more manageable perspective that says, maybe what am I going to do with the next few years? There's very interesting stuff I read some years back uh, from American psychologists, and they were looking at what would you do with the last 10 years of your life? And it's always stuck in my mind, you know, as they get older, <laughs> it becomes more and more of a pressing question. And I can't think of a mechanism in 
in the UK, when we might want to look at introducing it to an independent Scotland, a mechanism that allows you to do that. It actually gives you an option to sit down and do a 10 year forward look and decide what's good for you, not only financially, but as a human being. So that's my two happens worth. Okay, Bye. thanks. Thanks very much for that, Bill. All right, um, I'm going to go back to um, the chat um, box, just basically to go over maybe some of the comments we've had, um, some of which would probably be too complicated, take too long uh, to, to go into, into uh, questions. Um, so one or two of the things we've, we've had in, um, right, let's see, for example, yeah, yeah, when we get indie, someone's asking, will money and pension funds be ring fence so the government can't dip into it? I don't think the government can dip into it just now, but there we go. Um, and let's see. Yeah, let's see. That's more about where we'll find money. I think we've kind of covered that. And yeah, here's what I actually probably will ask you about because it, it does um, sort of, come across how things will actually work. Um, this question was, uh, would the UK have to transfer money to Scotland as the people have paid into Westminster coffers? It's Scottish pensioners' money after all. Um, and that also ties in maybe with another question we, we had um, that uh, was about how would pensions be calculated for people who became pensioners after independence? Uh, would the Department of Work and Pensions continue to pay um, uh, based on pre-independence national insurance contributions and the Scottish government, what would they do based on post-independence contributions? So it's really a, a kind of a technical question really on, on how we'll handle things in a sort of transfer from a Scottish, uh, sorry, from a UK state pension to a Scottish um, state pension. That's something that has come up quite a lot and I realise it's quite a technical question, but just kind of wondered what your your thoughts are on, on how we, we might do that. Um, I think actually for this one, I'm going to come to, to Jim and ask him how he thinks that should be handled or if indeed he knows that, how it will be handled. Well, what I can tell you is that, uh, that, that there's absolutely no um, need for the, the successor state of the rest of the UK to pay Scottish pensions after independence if they choose not to and uh, I think in most instances they wouldn't but that's immaterial because in actual fact Scottish taxpayers have been paying Scottish pensions forever and um, we, we've been paying our own pensions right through the history of the pension uh, and uh, there's no change to that once um, we become independent um, we will be the people that are liable for the state pension as Scottish taxpayers um, when independence comes. What, what is a much more interesting question, I think, though, than that is that um, there's a lot of people that live in Scotland who are not in favour of independence. Uh, and this goes back to one of the points that you made earlier, uh, I think, Ken, about the, uh, the question on Europeans. I know it was Gordon that mentioned it, uh, about the uh, people after Brexit and whether or not they were entitled to pensions. And I think this is one of the negotiating positions that uh, a Scottish team should be very hardball on 
when it comes to the pension. If you don't want to be part of an independent Scotland and you decide that your nationality uh, is going to remain British, then it's up to Westminster and the rest of Britain to pay your pension. Uh, whether you're, well, you won't be Scottish, you'll be British. Um, just as they do for people that live in Spain, if not people that live in Australia, um, and for everybody else that uh, there's a negotiated right on. That there should only be a guarantee by the Scottish government, as it becomes an independent government, to pay pensions to people who are Scottish citizens and who have decided that their nationality is Scottish. And the Scottish taxpayer, and that would include, I'm afraid, some of the people who might then determine that they're going to be uh, the rest of the UK citizens, um, the Scottish taxpayer only pays Scottish pensions. So um, it's an interesting question, but it's not all the eggs in the UK basket, quite the reverse. There's a lot of eggs in the Scottish basket on that one. Uh, and I think we should be definitely prepared to break a few of them, uh, just to put it back to the UK that uh, they're not in complete control of our pensions. Okay, thanks for that, Jim. Bit of controversial stuff there, um, but that's that's good. Thanks very much for that, Gordon. What's what's your take on that? Uh, I remember from the first white paper there was all sorts of caveats in there about uh, everything from pensions to uh, to DVLC, etc. And we'll agree that the DVLC will still be run from Swansea for a period of time and all that sort of stuff. And I'm sort of like, no. We'll just change this. There's a transition period, and then during that transition period, it's not against the the, the wit of man or beyond the wit of man to actually uh, move those jobs and those tasks to Scotland. And Jim's correct in that um, you know if the if the UK were to say right, uh, we will not make any contribution towards Scottish people's pensions, then they don't have to. But at the same time, we don't have to make any contribution to their debt either. So you know it's a you know, it's a fine. Let's get let's get the actuaries to figure out how much each is worth and just swap them over. And it's just what you do uh, when you're becoming an independent country. Uh, what the Scottish government can do, though, is it can make a guarantee that you will get the pension that you are due, that you have contributed to. And yeah, you know, so you're going to be protected. And I think they should also make a, a guarantee that uh, if there were to be any currency fluctuations, they should say uh, that we will hedge against that. Um, and that's one where I will defer to Jim uh, on how to best do, do the hedging. Um, the other thing you've got to remember is that the, the point of independence is to actually create something better. And amongst other things, it's creating a better economy. And I agree completely with Craig about renewables. And uh, although I wouldn't necessarily take the whole Green New Deal as it is, it, it, it's part of the whole well-being economics approach, not the well-being virtue signaling word that gets thrown around, but the well-being economics approach, which is a detailed approach that's being developed. Um, whether the Scottish government are developing that or buying into it is a different question. Um, but you also have to remember that if we improve the economy, then it becomes more affordable. If we address tax evasion, it becomes more affordable, et cetera. If we increase immigration, to, well, then we change the demographics, it becomes more affordable. Also, you've got to remember that we are subsidising pensions. Not just are we paying for it, because we've, we've, we've subsidised the UK uh, for every year of, of 
you know, since Jer's records exist, etc. If you take a look at the, the the amount of money we've paid the UK, uh, and actually uh, figure out who's done best out of it, the UK's done better than Scotland has by a long way. Um, look at my accounting trick uh, article on my website for for that one. Uh, but people in the UK live 1.7 years longer than people in Scotland. So on average, uh, we're getting paid about but 11 to 12,000 for females and about 14,000 a year uh, less for men out of the pension pot. So it's more affordable. Hopefully that would change and we start to live longer in an independent Scotland because we'll be a wealthier nation. But at least for the first couple of years, there's some discounts there. So there's, there's twos and fro's. But I think, yes, we should definitely take everything on board and run it ourselves right from the beginning and make the commitments and say we'll be in charge, therefore we can make these guarantees. Right. Okay. Thanks uh, for that, Gordon. Right. It's nearly half past eight. So we've been on for about an hour and a half. So I really want to kind of uh, wrap things up now. So this is going to be our, our sort of uh, last question um, uh, for everyone. And um, what I'd uh, would like to say here, guys, is if you can, because I'm sure you could probably talk about this all night long, is just keep it to just maybe a, a couple of minutes. Um, what we've been asked is what different policies should an independent Scotland have um, as opposed to the ones we have at Westminster uh, just now in, in terms of how, uh, you know, we work on, on pensions. So just basically, if you like, what some of your ideas might be for an independent Scotland, which the UK doesn't do just now. Um, start with yourself, Craig. Hi, um just very, very quickly on that previous question. Since it was on my list uh, at okay. the start, I'm not going to answer it. I'm just going to say I have written a paper on the debt and asset negotiations that includes a section on, on pensions. If you search for Scottish Independence Conventions Transitions Series, you'll find it there. On the question, <laughs> um, I'll try and answer the question you're asked. I'm not a politician. Um, the big thing for me would be universal basic income and how that then absorbs almost the state pension in many ways. One of the big advantages of doing that, of, of re almost replacing the, the state pension with a universal basic income, is it immediately gets rid of that, that cliff edge, retirement age of you, know, you are a working person who works like my mum 50 hours a week, retires and does zero. She actually tried retiring um, a few years ago and that, that shock was just too much and she went back to work. If you have a universal basic income that helps just blur that line, you can start thinking about things like reducing your hours. Maybe I'll start working four days, three days, two days. Maybe I'll just keep, keep my head in on a Monday and make sure everyone's still there and remembers me. And, um, and, and you can extend your working life, but you can smooth it out. You can, you can adjust that more easily to your, your condition, your, your, your situation as you are. And that one change among all the other benefits that universal basic income ha would have, that one changes, I think, something that's valuable and we should approach. Okay, that's great, Craig. Yep, thanks very much for that. Gordon, one or two ideas, what would, what would you do? I'm, gonna, I'm basically uh, going to be quite, quite short on this one because I agree with what Craig just said. If I, if I would actually say universal basic income is something we have to move to at some point, just because the the state of the economy, we're, we're going to have a, a beyond work economy, uh, not in our lifetimes, but maybe in our children's lifetimes. 
um, you know, uh, robotics, etc., artificial intelligence is not just taking away production jobs, it's starting to take away lawyers and accountants' jobs now, it's starting to impact on the middle classes for the first time, so I think we might actually see some action on that. Um, talk about pensioners and the growing amount of pensioners there are, I think that um, making sure that pensioners are not excluded from economic activity is going to be absolutely vital to maintaining some form of stability for the economy going forward. You can't have 25% of the population living in poverty and not contributing. You know, think about that. You've got, you, you, you should look at that as a great growth market if you can get them engaged. And, you know, Jim, Jim tried to make my uh, suggestion of uh, they should buy winter coats and new shoes if you gave them a 50 pounds a week into some sort of rampant consumerism that would sink the economy, but I don't think so. Uh, basically, uh, what I'm saying is that they'll spend it on the good things that we want people to buy. They won't buy foreign houses or put it in or put it in hedge funds, etc. that they'll spend the things that the local economies, that family businesses produce, etc. Maybe a wee bit extra bingo as well. Um, but essentially, I think that we've got to address this and a universal basic income is something we've got to really start thinking seriously about. Maybe not for the next five, 10 years will it be implemented. So we've still got a pensions issue to deal with there. But we've got to start saying, well, because one or two things, we're going to look at the future and we're going to start looking at them really seriously and UBI is one of them. Right, that's great. Thanks very much for that, Gordon. Jim, what, what would what give us an idea too of what, uh, what you'd like to see? Yeah, if you give me an increased pension, by the way, I'd spend it mostly in William Hills, but uh, uh, that might go into the local economy as well somewhere. Um, so what would uh, we, we need to do? Uh, and remember, we... we we don't have independence. Uh, we, we've got to make the case for um, what we're doing about pensions and about that. that, and that uh, pensions, most importantly, because that's how we lost the last one. So we've got to make the case for a, a very radical overhaul of the pension system in Scotland. Uh, now, universal basic income might be the answer, but uh, there's a lot of issues still to be decided around that one. What would I do? Um, We've mentioned mandatory provident funds or mandatory saving schemes that, uh, which lead into pension pots. That's, I think, essential. The, the, there's huge numbers of examples around the world of how that can be done. Pick a good one and go with that. Um, hypothecated taxes uh, to make sure that the transition from the UK to, to Scotland as an independent country doesn't disadvantage pensioners. And this is where it really becomes important in promising them something that can actually be delivered because we've researched it properly and we know where the funds are going to come from. This is where the British state will fall down uh, very badly by arguing against an independent Scotland. So what do I mean by hypothecated taxes? Uh, well, we've spent all our time in the last 40 years taxing the profits of oil companies in the North Sea. I mean, how stupid do you have to be to actually introduce a, a taxation system that trusts oil companies to tell you what their profits are? Uh, you, you've got to be mad to do that. So introduce a wellhead tax on oil, say $5 a barrel. Um, if the oil companies don't like it, then they can bugger off and we can have Stat Oil or somebody else will come in and do the job. Uh, and of that $5, let's say $3 goes into the pension fund, into the pension pot every uh, every day. Um, we, we could introduce a land value tax uh, to increase the 
the, the sourcing of taxation in Scotland, which heavily taxes landowners uh, and people who don't use property uh, very efficiently uh, and use that as hypothecated funds for pensions. And we can change our spending priorities. And we should be promising that to people as well. As I say, mine would be uh, taking defence expenditure down from 2% of GDP to half a percent and 1.5% can go into the pension pot. This isn't rocket science. Okay, thanks very much for that, Jim. And uh, lastly, and Manda gets to wrap up this particular question tonight, Bill. Uh, thanks, two things. First of all, we need to get there, and I think a lot of the things we've talked about tonight could be summed up as the beginnings of a blueprint for a kind of future retirement income pension system for an independent Scotland. So that needs to happen and start happening quite soon. The second thing uh, I'd draw attention to would be the idea of giving power to, uh, to Scottish citizens. I think in the present system, we're all treated uh, as if we're just subjects of the Queen, as it were, and things trickle down from the top end of the, the pyramid to the bottom end, and most of us are nearer the bottom than the top, and that means most of us get less and less and less power over our own lives. If you make the analogy with pensions, it's almost as if we haven't come very far on from the early days when pensions were introduced where most people were dead before they were eligible to collect them. Uh, and those people had no say in that. And we need to get away from that in the 21st century to a point where every Scottish citizen is well informed, uh, has the opportunity to try things out and to explore uh, and to figure out what's the best way of life for them in an independence. Department. The moment we're all told the best way of life for us is pretty much to do whatever Boris Johnson or whoever happens to be the Prime Minister of the day thinks is the best for us. That really has to change. I mean, there's a long tradition of Scottish people saying, well, we stand up for ourselves. We speak for ourselves. We're Scottish. We're different. That's partly why we need to be independent and to, to have a self-determination for our nation. Within that, I think we need self-determination for our citizens, each and every one of us. And that would be something I would want to see built in as a sort of module for an independent Scotland. The way uh, for every citizen to have their own say uh, and the, the ability to plan their future and to manage it to, to their best abilities. Not asking much, is it? No. <laughs> okay, Bill. <laughs> Thanks very much for that. Okay, we're going to bring things to uh, a close there. I think what comes out of it for me is a number of things. First of all, I think we've, we've certainly answered some questions tonight, but we've also shown how big uh, a subject pensions is uh, in the independence debate. And uh, I think what's come out of it from, uh, from our panel tonight is that we do have to do a, a lot of work from a campaigning point of view to, to put together a proper proposal um, for people uh, to to buy into effectively. And also, and I think particularly shown in that last question, uh, is that an independent Scotland could do things very differently, very radically differently. Uh, and I think everyone on the panel has, has come up with some, some great ideas uh, about how we can do things much better on this particular subject, as well as many others uh, in an independent Scotland. So thank you, everybody who's um, taken the time to send in a question tonight. Sorry we haven't been able to answer them all. We'd really be here for a week if we tried to answer all of them. But I'd like to thank uh, our panel again. That's uh, Gordon, Jim, Craig and Bill for uh, taking the time to join us 
this evening. Um, so thank you all again, and uh, that we will be back um, fairly soon, I think in June, uh, with another presentation, but we'll put details of that up on the, the Facebook um, nearer the time. So again, thanks very much, and good night. <laughs>